Let me read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. First word is blessed, blessed. Another translation of that word is happy. So as we introduce Psalm 1, as we are introduced to all the psalms or songs, we're asked, are you happy? That's the first question of the the psalms. As we come to God in song, come to God in prayer, come to God in these words borrowed from these psalms, would you like to be happy? Of course you would. Are you happy? As you reflect on that, I'll ask a couple more questions around it. If you are happy, congratulations. (laughs) How did you get there? Because a lot of people are interested in having what you have. If you're not happy, why not? And do you know how to find it? So one of the things that we'll see in this passage is repeated throughout the Psalter and in the scriptures is you can never find happiness by seeking happiness. That's important to remember. You can never find happiness by seeking happiness. You have to look elsewhere, and it's a side gift that comes. So the question is where? Where do you look that you'll get happiness as a side benefit? Happy is also the concept of pleasure, the concept of enjoyment. In Psalm 16, if we have time, I'm going to open up for for questions. I'll do a, a talk and then have discussion about Psalm 1, and if there's time at the end, I'll I'll point us to Psalm 16, which kind of expounds on some of this and uses the word pleasure. Happy is a concept of pleasure. So another way we could get at our main question, are you happy, is what is your greatest pleasure? And again, I'll ask another question around that. I'm going at the same thing in a different way. Um, Are you happy? Um, How did you find that happiness? What's your greatest pleasure? Now the follow-up question is, do you understand that it needs to be more than your spouse? More than your job? More than your hobby? Your greatest pleasure can't be one of those or you're spinning out of control. You, You take a bicycle wheel, right, and it spins properly if it's spinning on the axle in the center. If you move the axle out, now the the tire spins wobbly. The same for our lives. If your pleasure, your greatest pleasure is not the right thing, you're going to be spinning like a funny wheel. It has to be more than your children, more than your grandchildren. That can't be the answer. What's your greatest pleasure? My grandchildren. Wrong answer for a Christian. Your life will spin out of control if it's the wrong answer. This is a very important introduction to the Psalter. It's an important introduction to the scriptures. It's a summary. This this psalm is incredible. It's a distillation 
of all the teaching of Scripture. Your greatest pleasure needs to be more than your hobby. Listen to the last verse of a hymn we often sing. It's called, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. It's in your hymn book. Let me just read verse 4. Listen carefully. Savior, so this is a prayer. Savior, if of Zion City, you know, heavenly city, Jerusalem, if of Zion City I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, like, you know, disdain us or feel sorry for us, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's members know. I think that nails it. Another place that nails it, I'm kind of teasing you by talking around it to get at what we're going to study in the first verse and what the psalm presents. This is an introduction purposely making you kind of hunger for it a bit more, right? Another place that nails it is the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is also in your hymn book. Question one, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? Another way you could say it is, are you happy? You're only happy if your bicycle wheel is spinning on the proper axle in the center, right? What's the chief end of man? How could you get that wheel to be spinning properly? How could you be happy? Why are we here? What's it all about? How do I know if I'm properly doing life as a human, right? Answer, to glorify God and to blank forever. Enjoy him forever. What's the last three letters of the word enjoy? Joy. To enjoy God forever is to have joy, is to have happiness, is to have the blessedness that we're talking about here. That's the whole reason we're here. If you want to understand life, not just the Christian life, but what human life is supposed to be about, it's to honor God, glorify him, exalt him as the awesome God that he is, and to enjoy the fact that he is our God, that he's our creator, that he's our redeemer. And to have that relationship with him, human to creator, sinner to savior, is what it's all about. That's happiness. That's blessedness. So blessed is the man who. That's what we're talking about. And so another way you could get at this, again, I'm doing this introduction on purpose, like coming at the same question in eight different ways or so. You could start over by asking it this way. Are you stable? Stable like a tree is stable. So that's, of course, you know, the, the, the main illustration from Psalm 1, the illustration of a godly man or a godly woman. They're stable like a tree. And it's another way of saying it's a Christian. It's, it's a solid Christian. It's a basic Christian. It's a historic Christian. It's not a Christian with a booster package. Boy, they really got into it and got serious, so they're stable like a tree. The rest of us is kind of floating around like a bush. No, all Christians are supposed to have the same basic function, the basic description of we're solid like a tree. Are each of us like a tree? Are each of us a Christian? Are each of us blessed? Are each of us happy? Do we each understand what true pleasure is, what humanity's for? It's all the same question. So the question that arises off the page as we begin to study Psalm 1 and the Psalter itself, as we reflect about our own selves and the the psalm asks a question to you. Are you a Christian? 
Are you a believer? Are you happy? Are you stable? Are you blessed? Blessed is the man who? Or a woman who? What about you? Are you like a tree? This phrase that begins the Psalter could be translated, Oh, the happiness of. That word could be translated, Oh, the happiness of. And it's an exclamation of very strong emotion. If it's resulting from a lot of reflection on the subject. You know, the first, you know, there's five books in the Psalter. And the first one is largely David's. We assume that David wrote this. Even if he didn't, it's still true in God's word. But let's take if it's David as, as the author. You don't have a title the way they often do. But let's say it's, it's David. It's as if David wrote it much later in his life. Like a lot of the Psalms had been written and were pulling them together. And now he writes this as a purposeful introduction to, upon much reflection, what the Psalms are all about, what life is all about. So he writes this, exclamation of strong emotion resulting from great reflection on the subject. It's later in life as he's learned much from the Lord and it's the use of the plural here. Um, Happiness. Oh, the happiness of. It, It denotes the fullness and the variety of the kind of pleasures and good things that are belonging to God's people. So this phrase, oh, the happiness of, is found in the book of Psalms 25 more times, for a total of 26 times. So again, the things that you find in Psalm 1 are introducing you to all sorts of strains of things across the Psalter. And this is simply one of them. That Are you sure you know what your life is all about? At its core, what's it all about? Oh, the happiness of. Oh, the blessedness of. We should be the most cheerful, happy, joyful people on earth. If we're not... What are we doing wrong? The psalm says, let me start at the beginning and explain to you how you're supposed to be thinking, how you're supposed to be singing, how you're supposed to be praying, how you're supposed to be living, and who gives us this precious gift of this sort of happiness. Oh, the happiness of those people who have this God. So it's written as an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. It seems set up that way the more you look at Psalm 1. It's written that way intentionally. It's sort of like a a doorkeeper at, at, at the door. You want to come into the Psalms, do you? Oh, you want to sing some of the Psalms? You want to read some of the Psalms, do you? The doorkeeper says, hang on just a second. Do you have your pass? Do you have your admission ticket? Uh, let me stop you there and figure out if you are going to approach the Psalms correctly. And he says, like the language of verse 5, so you want to be in the congregation of the righteous, huh? Well, you have a decision to make. He confronts you at the door. And the basic choice is the biggest choice you'll ever make. It's the biggest choice of human beings. Psalm 1 is like the guy who stops us and confronts us with one core choice that gives reality to our worship. It confronts us with the truth from God about God that reveals him and our inner selves, such as verse 2, do we delight in the law of God? Psalm 1 presents us with the ultimate judgment that stands looming at the end of human life. Where do you think this is all going? What will be the end? The end of you, the end of life for for you or for all of us? The end of the world, the end of your life? Where is this all going for you? What are the options past your life, post your life? Psalm 1 presents us with that. The things that stand looming, 
verses 5 and 6 state rather bluntly, because the whole psalm is brief, that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Are, are you one of the wicked? And you won't stand in the judgment. And the way of the wicked will perish. Everything you're tr- attempting to do is just going to be destroyed. But there's another group, a second group, that's not the wicked. There's a different group. Those people we call the righteous, and verse 6 says, the Lord knows them. So the psalmist is stopping you at the door saying, there's two groups of people. And before you step in to the Psalter, before you step into the book of Psalms, you're going to have to figure out what group you are in, what group you want to be in. The psalm brings up a keen interest in the company that you keep. Who are your friends right now? Are are your friends in one group or the other? They're in one or the other. The psalm brings up the huge significance of the overall direction of your life. What general pathway are you on? What trajectory would you say you're on in your whole life? There's only two pathways, for God or against God. Name it. Which one are you on? You're suddenly forced to state which one you're on by this doorkeeper. And uh, there's a logical end, a consequence, a a direct correlation from the decision you're making for which group you're aligning with and how your life will unfold day by day and then how it will end and what will happen in the afterlife. So the psalm takes into account what God has offered to us in all of Scripture. And the wisdom that God offers to human beings is rooted in the law of God which is the word of God, and the wisdom that's presented in so many different prophets from God. So Psalm 1 is quite in harmony with all the many different other voices in the Bible. It's in harmony with Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's in harmony with the minor prophets we just studied. It's in harmony with even the New Testament written later. Psalm 1 is distilled down, condensed Bible. It's all biblical wisdom, presented in one place at the door. And it's saying, you want to sing praise to God? You want to live for God? You want to be in the right pathway? And you want to have a life that means something, does something, accomplishes something, and ends up being with God instead of away from God? Pay attention to this psalm. You get this psalm wrong, you get it all wrong. So that's the significance. So then on your handout, you'll see we can summarize with one sentence. God has blessed his people in Christ with a happy, stable, godly life like a tree. So we'll first look at how our lives are. Do we see the good life in ourselves? Check our pathways, check our delights, check our ponderings. Are we stable like a planted tree? We'll unpack that some in A, B, C, and D. Point two, we'll perform the same check on Jesus. What do we see when we look at the life of Jesus Christ? He lived like a tree himself. Then he went to the cross, tree, sometimes called a tree, for us. And now he transplants and irrigates us to follow the tree imagery. Third point, we will look at the life of the wicked. And what do we see there? We'll observe instability, inevitable destruction, and exit from the worshiping faith community. We'll unpack that in verses 4, 5, and 6. And then fourth, last point, takeaway lessons. By now, by verse 6, when we'll get there, the wisdom psalm and its author will have exposed us as either being the wise or the foolish, either known by the Lord or doomed. Where will our current route lead us? It'll become clear by the end of our study. And the question will come, 
could we change paths if we were on the wrong path? So we start with the uh, first, first um, point on your, on your handout. We look at our lives. How do, we, how do we see them? Do we see the good life in ourselves? Uh, you probably heard this. Robert Frost uh, wrote a poem. It became famous. It's called The Road Not Taken. Here's a quick excerpt from it. You've probably heard before. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So Robert Frost described the point in his life where there's a fork in the road. That's just what psalmist, the psalmist is doing here. A fork in the road. He had to choose. Will it be this way or that way? The common highway or the road less traveled? Will it be the high road or the low road? The lighted boulevard or the dark street? Everyone wants to be happy. Which way will bring more happiness? To the right or to the left? It's when we're standing at that fork in the road that we as sinners are in danger of being influenced by the wicked to see happiness in some ungodly way. A man with a knife. Uh, Which one's better off? The one who is a man in the alleyway with a knife uh, seeking to rob someone or the man with a knife in a surgical center seeking to heal someone? You know, it's those kind of decisions that are at stake here. So Psalm 1 is categorized as a wisdom psalm. It presents wisdom to us if we have ears to hear. Actually, Psalm 1 is the father of all wisdom psalms. It starts here. This is the launch point for wisdom. St. Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin, that's probably what, if you've heard of him, that's what you know about him. He translated the Bible into Latin. He calls Psalm 1, quote, the preface of the Holy Spirit to the rest of the psalms. Of course, it's written by God the Holy Spirit, right? Not just written by David or uh, the author, human author, but the divine author. Charles Spurgeon, Baptist uh, preacher in the 1800s in in London, added this. Psalm 1 is the psalmist's desire to teach us the way to blessedness and to warn us of the sure destruction of sinners. This then is the matter of the first psalm, which may be looked upon in some respects as the text upon which the whole of the psalms make up a divine sermon. End quote. That's Charles Spurgeon. In other words, what he's saying is, If the whole book of the Psalms were a sermon, the text is Psalm 1 for that sermon. What makes this Psalm so rich? As we read the first Psalm, two portraits are drawn in our minds, that of the wicked man, that of the wise man. And the unwritten question is posed, which are you, wise or wicked, bearing fruit or perishing, blessed or cursed, sinner or righteous, scoffer or mediator? Each time you enter the Psalms, to worship, you're actually coming through Psalm 1, which is the gateway, and you're coming to worship and petition the Lord, and he asks you, whose side are you on? For or against the Lord? See, there's only two categories of people. When you really boil it down, it's that simple. With the Lord on his pathway, or not. So the first word of the whole Psalter in the original is a word for blessed. Blessed describes the only man or woman who walks firmly on the pathway of the Lord, and the last word of the psalm is perish. Isn't that interesting? First word is blessed. Last word is perish. You could say life, death. <laughs> blessed, cursed. It's very simple, right? So look at 1A. If we're on the path of the Lord, how do we know? First, go 1A, B, C, and D. 1A. We know we're on the pathway of the Lord if we refuse to follow other counselors, not stand in the path of sinners, not sit in the seat of scoffers. So everybody knows that people walking in the Lord go from bad to worse. If you're concerned about one of your relatives, concerned about a neighbor, a child, a friend, you know that it starts off with this, 
and the next thing you know, you're hearing about this, and then you're hearing about far worse, far darker, and you're like, what in the world is happening now? It's, it's out of control. That's, we understand. We, we all have seen and experienced the degradation and decline, the spiral downward of people. It's described here, the progression downward. How does a person end up at the Milwaukee Rescue Mission? How does that happen? Like that? Never. What are the steps? Could we describe it? Yes. It's a long process, but it's very simple. You can describe it in three steps. The three steps are described here in verse 1. Do we understand the initiation of it? Do we understand the progression downward? It's plainly spelled out here. First they walk in sin, then they stand in sin, soon they graduate and are installed on their own reserved seat among the ungodly in sin. That's simple. One, two, three. But it's a long process. The way of the life of the wicked is exposed here. The end of the life of wickedness is also revealed here. The way of the world seems exciting to the young. The way of the world seems like a track on which they want to walk. There's goodies there. And the psalm tells the truth. If only the young will have ears to hear. The way of the world is a fast track to emptiness. A fast track to emptiness. A fast track to frustration in this life followed by the judgment of God in the life to come. That's the truth. The psalm tells the brutal truth here. B, we're on the pathway of the Lord if we continue in the Lord's law, his word, delighting and meditating on it day and night. 1B, so since the wicked man is described in terms of his counselors in 1A or verse 1, now the blessed man is also described in terms of his counselor, singular, Capital C, his counselor. Who does he take counsel from? It's not enough to contrast or avoid associating with wicked humans and instead of associate with godly humans. It's not enough. The man who's righteous must be drinking from a higher, hidden source. The godly man's delight is not listed here as the companionship of the godly ones, the fellowship of the saints, although that's good, comes with it. He's blessed to have the enjoyment of fellowship with brothers and sisters in the Lord. But that's not the source of his strength. That's not the core source of his strength. The godly man or woman's delight is in the law of the Lord. He or she meditates on it day and night, not on the counsel received from Christian friends, although, again, that's good, but on the counsel received direct from God through his word, his law. The righteous person finds the law of the Lord the object of his own or her own intense and continuous study. The word law here is used to refer, of course, to the whole of God's inscripturated revelation, the Torah or the law, everything that God has given to us in his book. The holy man or woman studies the whole Bible. Why? What the godly man really loves to learn about and think about is God himself. It's the center of it all. Paul writes it this way, Romans 8, 7. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Two pathways, right? So the one who's wicked shakes a fist against God and will not submit to him. But the man of God, woman of God, follows God and is hungry for him. It clearly indicates a new birth. The regenerating spirit of God gives a new birth from above. When a person finds out about himself or herself that he or she loves the word of God. The Bible conveys to him or her the will of God, and he or she delights to do it. The believer will pore over Scripture constantly, literally daytime and nighttime. The contrast between the persons is stark. 
The wicked is in love with sin, while the righteous is in love with God. Does that sound too simplistic or pietistic? I mean, that's really, when you, when you boil it down, that's what, what the difference is. The one who loves sin's ways and follows them, the other seeks the fir- first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to borrow words from Jesus, Matthew 6, He seeks God in God's scripture where God's own counsels and instructions may be found. That was 1B. We move on to 1C. We know we're on the pathway of the Lord if we have been transplanted by streams of water like a tree and we bear enduring fruit. Colossians 1, verse 13. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So spiritually, that's the same concept, right? There's one pathway and he's transferred us to a different pathway. Now, if you apply the agricultural idea of a tree, the tree's been transplanted. It was in the path of darkness, and now it's over here. It was in a garden that'll never grow, and now it's in God's garden where it's irrigated. Colossians 1.13 presents the concept that is being expounded here in verse 3. Another analogy from the New Testament that fills out the picture is if it's a fruit tree, there's fruit growing on it. If I'm an orange tree, I have oranges growing on me. If I'm an apple tree, I have apples growing on me. If I'm a tree of God, a child of God who's planted like a tree, what do I have growing on me? Godly character, which Paul describes in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is, if I have the Spirit in me, therefore I'm a spirit tree, I'm a God tree, I'm a godly tree, then I'll have these things growing in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And Paul goes on to write in Galatians 5.25, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So again, you see the two pathways. I crucify what belongs to the wrong pathway, and I walk in this pathway. So again, using the tree metaphor here in Psalm 1 verse 3, it gives us an unforgettable and very simple picture of the man who delights in the Bible and who draws his spiritual nourishment from his word. Just as a tree draws its nourishment from abundantly flowing streams, so a believer draws his nourishment from the living word. The surrounding land might be dry and barren, not unlike the surrounding society in which we find ourselves. The spiritual condition of our world is dry and barren. The winds might be hot, not unlike the attack straight from the furnace of the devil against God and his people in every generation. But that tree is planted by the stream of God's word, and it sinks its roots deep and not only revives its green foliage, but even yields fruit in the middle of hot winds and a desert location. Trees, when you think about it, have not grown so tall and strong by standing in the place where they constantly enjoy 72-degree sunshine and a cool breeze. It's all they ever get, right? That's when we see them, because we go for walks at that time. But when we're not looking, trees continue standing in that same place when it's dark and in the wind that we never experience because we're in our basement and in the rain and the storm and the gale and the bitter cold when we're under the covers and even in hail. In all these harsh conditions, we're supposed to understand the tree is strong anyway because it has deep roots. It's a powerful image. We carry that with us. It's a simple image. You, you think of that every time you open the Psalter. 
That's point one. We move to point two. When we perform this check on Jesus, what do we see? Now, the blessed man, right? How this begins, blessed is the man who? Let's go back to the first man, Adam. Is he a blessed man? Trick question, right? Originally, you have to say yes. Later on, you say no way, right? So he was created a blessed man. Beautiful thing. Garden, no sin, walk with God. Then he fell into sin. Blessedness goes away. He's on a different pathway all of a sudden. It's only two pathways. What has happened? In the fall, and in the fallen world, what we were missing is anyone who will love the Lord and his word and his will. God said, don't eat of that tree. If you love that, you will not eat of that tree, and you'll be so glad not to eat of that tree. But if you're on a different pathway, you're like, oh, that tree looks kind of good. I think I will indulge a little. Nobody will know. It's the wrong pathway in the heart, right? So Adam fell. Now we have zero people who love God. We need a second Adam to start over. We need one who will finish his life loving God. We need what, we, what the Bible calls a last Adam, one who would represent all of us, and we could perform this check on him like we performed this check on Adam. Adam failed. The last Adam is this man we call Jesus. Is he a blessed man? Blessed is the man who? He's a blessed man all of his life. Jesus never failed to listen to God's word. He never failed to live out the instructions and wisdom of God's word. We read in Hebrews 10, 17 that Jesus declared to God his Father, listen, behold, remember from last week when we studied the word behold, it means here I am. Jesus says, here I am. I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, Hebrews 10, 17. Psalm 1 is the ideal way for humans to strive to live, and all of us fail in Adam. We add to the failure in Adam by our own personal, current failures. Psalm 1 is the description of the way our Savior actually lived. When he fulfilled all righteousness for us, his delight is in the word, and so there, therefore our delight is in the word, both the written word and in the living word himself, the person of Jesus. Our delight is in the word of God, even Jesus. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And jump to 1, 4, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. <clears throat> so the blessed man in the beginning verse is our Lord Jesus. We perform the check on him, we find ourselves delighted, right? He passed the, the test, it's all about him. He didn't consent to the plans of the ungodly Jewish leaders. He didn't walk according to the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight was in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditated day and night. He lived like a tree planted firmly by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. His leaf never withered and whatever he did he prospered. He's the only one who really lived like this. And he stands at the beginning of the book of Psalms as the doorkeeper. And he says, are you going to come into this life and believe in me? It's the only way you will have this kind of heart that loves God and his word. It's the only perfect man who ever lived. And he gives to us his righteous record. If we'll trust in him and by faith, he cleanses us and gives us his righteousness. He turns wicked people into righteous people. We were on the wrong path and he transfers us to the right path. He also warns us that we were 
born in Adam, born on the wrong path, path of wicked that leads to perishing, which makes us humble. We're no better than our neighbors. Consider the support we have from Jesus as we interpret Psalm 1 then in this way. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples on the road to Emmaus famously in Luke 24, and he said this, He, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So, of course, Jesus died and rose again to make us forgiven and godly people to make us like trees. So listen to what Paul wrote about a set of trees. You know, a church, a set of Christians, Colossians 1.9. We have not ceased to pray for you, Paul writes, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, listen, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 9-14. So we are Christians because of Christ, We are trees who have been transplanted from death and placed squarely on the stream of his beloved son and his word. Believing men, believing women, bear distinctive fruits. As I read earlier, Galatians 5.22, that's the driest of climates that we live in. Trees of God can still most easily be discerned in the midst of a devastating drought like this. Trees will be the ones with green leaves and fruit. Christians do not wither even under persecution. We delight and drink in the word of God, more abundantly produce the Holy Spirit's fruit. We become like Jesus. That was point two. Moving to point three. When we look at the life of the wicked, what do we see? So 3A. Well, well, on line three it says, observe instability, inevitable destruction, exit from the worshiping faith community. So 3A. We are not on the pathway of the Lord if we have not been translated planted and instead remain in the impermanent as chaff. What about the wicked of verse 4? After everything that we've described, now let's go to verse 4. After the long flowery language of verses 1 to 3, we get to verse 4. They just basically said, yeah, the wicked, not so much. It's about all that's said, right? The wicked, not so. They don't have that. What you have, they don't have it. It's kind of like... I hesitate to give this illustration, but I sometimes watch the Survivor show. And in the Survivor, the guy um, hosting the show, Jeff, he explains this beautiful um, meal that people can enjoy. They'll take a helicopter ride and have a pleasant afternoon. And then he turns to the other people and says, I got nothing for you. Take your bag and go back to camp. It's like, the wicked are not so. All these beautiful things that God has, the wicked, not so. No gifts, no blessings, right? Are each of the wicked persons like a tree? No. Not so much. None of the wicked persons are like a tree. They're like something else. Then he does explain what they're like. What are they like? Threshing floors in the ancient world were built on hills that would catch the best breezes. Grain was brought to the hills, and the grain was pitched high into the air. And the wind would take away what was called chaff, the lighter, useless hull of the grain. The valuable grain fell back to the floor, heavy, 
and was collected and used, of course. The chaff was blown away, and there it is on the side of the hill. Nobody even bothered to pick it up. Chaff is worthless. Chaff was burned up. When we eat popcorn and that little brown piece that sticks in your tooth, that's chaff. All you want is to get rid of it. There's no good use for it. You don't pick it out of your tooth and use it for something. It's the hull. It's the chaff. It's useless. It's annoying. It corresponds to the truth that godless people who lead lives against God are futile, empty, and worthless. They will inevitably be judged by God and, yes, burned up, continuously burned up. So 3A. Then we move to 3B. We're not on the path of the Lord if we follow our own counsel rather than God's word concerning judgment and the assembly of the righteous for worship. The people near you who are not believers think that God's judgment is only a matter of mild merits and mild demerits. Never killed anybody. They love to say that. They love to say that. It reveals that they believe there's a system of mild merits, mild demerits, and some manageable system of classroom rewards and internal classroom temporary timeouts is what's coming. That's to follow the world's counsel. They are so dead wrong. To think that getting to heaven is a matter of having enough of your own personal obedience to outweigh your own personal disobedience is to not know the truth of God's word anywhere. Because the entire Bible clearly teaches that salvation is by faith through the righteousness of Christ Jesus and that the holiness of God is a very serious matter. There's no one who's lived up to it who has more merits than demerits. It's absolutely ridiculous. And Christian people can be filled with rage quickly to think about how wrong that sort of teaching is. The Bible teaches salvation is not earned ever. It's a matter of a gift from God. It's a matter of our own gift from Christ, from his obedience, his obedience for us. It's not even a reward for our own obedience. It's a result of his resurrection life within us. So that's 2B, sorry, 3B. Now to 3C. We know we're not on the path of the Lord if we, like verse 6 says, Miserable, and our existence is heading for an end in death and separation from God. In other words, God suddenly removes us and we perish. Verse 6 is a fitting end to this psalm and a fitting end to the introduction to the book of Psalms because it distinguishes between the final end of the righteous and the final end of the wicked. Solomon, known for his wisdom, writes in Proverbs 14, 12, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14, 12. It's the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous is none other than the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. He describes himself as the way. John 14, 6. Matthew 28, 20. He gave a promise to those who would follow him on his way. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Brings us to point four. Last point today. Takeaway lessons. By now, our wisdom psalm and its author have exposed us as being either wise or foolish either known or doomed. Where will our current route lead us? Could we now change paths? Ultimately, it's the Lord who is responsible for which path you are traveling. And if he knows us, since he knows us, we know him. And we're holy and righteous and alive eternally because of the cross. If so, he cares for us. We're safe and happy to come full circle to our question at the start. Are you happy? I want you to notice in verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Doesn't that seem backwards? You guys are Bible students. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Shouldn't it read, the righteous know the way of the Lord? 
Isn't that what we've been talking about the whole time? This is so important. It's so intentional that it's written exactly the way God intends for it to be written. Please glean what we're supposed to glean from this. The righteous know the way of the Lord. Sure, yeah, that would be true. That is true, and we get that from the whole psalm. But it's not what the psalmist is ending with. It's not what he's teaching here. He's teaching something else that's so important. The Lord knows the ways of his people. So today, what if you're on the wrong path? The Lord knows. If you're one of his people, he's calling to you, right? And that's true around the world. So that's why we send missionaries, because the Lord has his people. He knows the ways of his people. He knows they're dead in sin and they're suffering and misery, and he's bringing his missionary to share his news with them. And the question is, can you change paths? Of course we can. That was us. I mean, verse 6 is written that way because the Lord knows the way of the righteous is only righteous because of Jesus. You haven't done anything to earn this. The Lord knows that. He's never confused about that. So we need to be refreshed in that, remind ourselves. Can you change paths? Yes, come to Christ. It's a clear invitation to Christ. See how he's revealed in Scripture. Learn of Jesus in this book. Read Psalm 1 again and then read the whole Psalter. Read the whole book. It's all about Jesus. The Gospel News says he transplants people into his orchard. You can be a tree, a fruit-bearing tree in the orchard of Christ. Even if your parents were not, you can be a tree. You can be a Christian studying his word. So that verse that I, I wrote on there, 2 Timothy three sixteen. Sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Also, the, the last section in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount echoes this, uh, Matthew, Matthew 7. A series of contrasts. If you read it, it's, it's from Matthew 7, I think it's verse uh, 13. Yeah, 13 to 27. Listen to all the contrasts. That I'll summarize. The choice is to be made between two gates two roads, two trees, two types of fruit, two houses, and two foundations of those houses. Don't you think Jesus is taking Psalm 1 and expounding on it and helping us and the original listeners to understand what's at stake in Psalm 1 and the same idea is still there? Fork in the road. Decision to be made. Here's a sample of what Jesus said. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Sounds familiar, right? You see that all through Matthew 7. Psalm 1 is the earlier expression of this in Scripture. Jesus sees our fork in the road. He knows the two ways of life from which we must choose, and he instructs us which to choose. Enter by the narrow gate. It says similarly in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. So that was my uh, presentation. As promised, I'll pause if there's comments, discussion. I have more, you know.